true that life is short. It is true that uh, life is full of trouble. But it's also true that God expects us to overcome hardship. And He equips us to overcome hardship. He expects us to do it. He is our greatest cheerleader. He's our greatest encourager. He is for us. Like Paul said, if God's for us, then who can be against us? We can do this. We can do it. And I want to hear from the Lord what He said to Jacob when he wrestled with him through the night and into the morning. And he said to him, Blessed are you, you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. I'd like to hear that. We often say we'd like to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That would not be a bad welcome. You have struggled with God and men and have overcome. Come into the joys of your Lord. We're going to talk today about some people, three women in particular, from our recent readings and then the one, the last one, in the week to come, from which our text was read this morning about Hannah. We're going to talk about three women who endured to the end. There it is. Most of our struggles have to do with one of four things, it seems to me. We're either struggling with our past life and therefore trying to forgive ourselves, you move past things that have happened in our lives, or struggling with sin that we're currently involved in, engaged in, or just simply have committed, uh, and we're, we're struggling to accept Christ's forgiveness. Does He forgive me? Am I worthy to be saved? And we go through that struggle. We also struggle with one another, <laughs> forgiving one another in the church family or those outside the church family, but oftentimes within, as a family goes. And then there's the struggling with God, trying to understand our present circumstances, maybe a terminal illness or the loss of a loved one, or maybe uh, the loss of a job or some trial that you're undergoing, and trying to understand how it makes sense in light of God's will. Are you with me so far? I mean, I, I, I think most of them would fit into those categories. And, and you may add a, a different area that something falls into, but for, for me personally, most of them fit into one of those four. Well, there are three women featured <clears throat> in the books of Joshua, Ruth, and 1 Samuel that struggled with life and yet showed endurance Saving faith to the end, about which the Lord spoke about Himself in the New Testament in Matthew 24 when He said, But he who endures to the end will be saved. These women had a deep-rooted faith. They had to learn it. They had to learn it. They had to overcome. And there, I want to focus on a couple of things. Yes, we'll focus on the nature of these women as we tell the background to each of them briefly, but I want you to look at the things that they overcame. That's where I really want your focus to be today. What did they have to get over? What, what hurdle did they have to climb in order to maintain this relationship with God that saves in the end? There were some things. There were some big things, and they fall into these categories that we're talking about today or on this slide. So let's first talk about Rahab. 
This isn't advancing. If you guys can help me in the back, that would be great. Maybe I have butter on my fingers from that English muffin this morning. Let's talk about Rahab first and how she overcame. She's found, by the way, in Joshua chapter 2 and 6, and in Matthew chapter 1 verse 5, and in Hebrews 11, that faith chapter we've recently talked about, verse 31, and also in James, when James is talking about faith in chapter 2 verse 25. Rahab. Now, maybe that sounds like a surprise to you, maybe it doesn't, but if you don't know who she was, she was a harlot who lived inside of the fortified wall in the small city of Jericho. You know, the one that Joshua ended up marching around for seven days, 13 laps in total, and it collapsed that they might go in. She was living in the wall. We know that at least one part of the wall didn't collapse, don't we? And she was a prostitute in this first city that was conquered by Joshua and God's people going into the promised land, the actual land that was promised, that is. No one would even have winced, probably, that she took two drifters from outside the city into her apartment one day. Par for the course. Nobody would have even perhaps thought twice about it, except that these were spies of the children of Israel and the city had been shut up pretty tight so that no one was going in and out because from Jericho you could see across the Jordan Valley. I'd encourage you to get a, a satellite this on Google or something and look at this, the layout of the geography, but they're down in the valley just north of the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, and you can see about 10 miles across and they can see Israelite encamped there. She's got a pretty nice little apartment, studio apartment. She's got a hole in the wall window, and she can see out. So she, among all the people, may have had the, the best view of this two million plus people that are camping across the river. Wow. She had already come to know who God was. She had already taken a great risk to do what she's about to do. She had heard of how God led the people out of Egypt and into the wilderness. She had heard how they passed through the Red Sea. And this, before she was even born, likely, it's over 40 years prior, she may not have even been born yet, so she had been hearing about this, but she also would have heard about His presence in the wilderness with them, and perhaps even have been able to look out and see the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night as they came down through Moab and the border of Moab and Ammon and down into the valley, where at last God settled with them and at last the pillar was taken up finally, but she may have seen that presence of God with them as she looked out her window. Their hearts were melted, she said. They had no courage in them whatsoever. They were disparaging of their lives. And though she feared like all the rest of Jericho, she acted in faith, that is, in her belief that this God was the God 
of the heavens and of the earth. She acted. She did something that the others didn't do. The others were preparing for battle. The others were concerned about survival. She was too, but she did something about it. She took these spies in, and the difference here was her hospitality was a little different than normal. She took them in and hid them as they were doing their spying, checking out the city, seeing where things, uh, how it was laid out, and, and just what it was going to take to do this. Now, God hadn't given them that great command to do that strange thing about walking around the city with trumpets yet. So they're spying it out, militarily-like, and she hides them on the roof. Now, if she would have been caught, what do you think would have happened to her? Because the city officials indeed come, uh, came and knocked at the door. And they said, bring out the men whom we believe to be spies from the children of Israel to us. She said, I think they left. <laughs> They left and went out before they shut the gates out there. If you hurry up, you might be able to catch them on the way back. And see, she had told them, we're going to let you out through the window, go to the mountains. And they lived at the base of the mountains of Judea. And just over the hill then would be Ai, and just straight west and a little south would be Jerusalem over here. And she said, go out and go up and into the wilderness. So she took a great risk. She also would have had to, in her request to them to save her and her family, go and face her mother and father who lived in the same small town with her siblings. We're having some internet connection problems, it looks like. I feel it back here behind me. Because <laughs> I'm not touching anything, it's going black, white, black, white. That's all right, stay with me. She changed her religion. So she has to go and present herself to her mother and father and her siblings as a harlot daughter and then say, I've changed the way I think about some things religiously. That's a pretty tough pill to swallow. But she does it. And they believe her. And she ends up bringing them into her home in that wall as Israel was marching around the city. She was converted from all she had ever previously known to be obedient to God the best she knew how at the time. But perhaps the greatest thing was she had to overcome her past. She had to get past this idea that I of all people am worthy of His judgment, which she had heard was the reason why that they were coming, that Israel was coming to dispossess them. I have all am unworthy, but she said, no, I also have heard of God's mercy and how He treated those who treated the Israelites well. He blessed those who blessed them, and He curses those who curse them. I've watched those who cooperate, and they're still alive. I've watched those like King Og, the giant king of Bashan, come against them and be annihilated. Maybe he'll look at me as a daughter if I obey. And so she had to overcome this hurdle. Now when she was taken out after the battle ensued with her family and spared as Joshua promised and the spies went back in specifically during that rush into the city just to go and save her from accidental death, they led her out and they gave them a place to stay 
outside the camp of Israel. With the camp of Israel, but outside the city, and then they were led to be with the people. She... probably, if I know human nature, and you do too, wasn't received very hospitably by all. Wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say so? Here comes a Canaanite woman uh, by descent of those whom we're supposed to dispossess, all of them. Here comes her family with her. They're coming to stay with us. Yes, we've heard about how she took in our spies, but she's a Canaanite She also uh, is a harlot by profession, and worse yet, she's a traitor by nature. Now, do you think all of God's people received her hospitably? I doubt it. I think that's a safe assumption. (laughs) I think it's a safe assumption. But there was at least one. There was at least one person who received her favorably. Once she cleaned her slate, I might add, by offering, as David did when he sinned, the sacrifices of a contrite heart and a broken spirit. And after she would have learned how to take the sin offering to God, to the priests of the people, and offered her offerings and become one of His people, which was allowable, To take the strangers into your gates, they must become uh, a child of God through the same means as the children of Israel did. Once she did that and cleaned her slate and overcame that, she actually found blessing in that a dashing young man, I'm sure, a valiant man, no doubt, named Salmon, found interest in her and admired her and was impressed by her and took her to be his wife. Now that may sound fishy to you, that may sound a little fishy to you, but alright, all right, I'm going on, I'm going on. But her story gets better when we learn in the book of Ruth that Salmon and Rahab had a son who is none other than the charming and wealthy Boaz. She is the great-great-grandmother to David and becomes an ancestor of Jesus Christ and is mentioned in the genealogy, the fifth verse of the New Testament of the Lord as one of the, the mothers in His lineage. What a tremendous blessing. Now think about what she overcame and what, how she fared after that and what she found when she came under the wings of the God of Israel. The second person I'd like to look at with you is is Ruth. Now hold on to that Salmon and Rahab had a son named Boaz. If you don't already know it, hold on to that. Ruth was a Moabitess. She was one of the descendants of Lot, therefore a distant cousin. Abraham's nephew Lot, when they separated, had Moab and Ammon. She was a Moabitess, and she lived across the river, across the valley, and up into that territory where Israel came through. She married an Israelite who came to her country 
seeking relief from a drought in Israel brought on by God during the days of the judges. We know it was fairly early on because of what happens here at the end of the book of Ruth and who she meets. So we know that this story took place fairly early um, and, and the Israelites had not been in the land very long. So she grew up worshiping idols in Moab but learned of God through her husband and his family when they came over to Moab. And their influence, probably largely coming from Naomi, whom she bonded so closely with. Let's talk about what she overcame. First of all, she overcome, uh, had overcome the loss of her husband. Within about a 10-year period in Moab, she lost her husband at a young age. She also lost her father-in-law, that would be Naomi's husband, and her brother-in-law, who was Orpah's husband. And so there's Naomi and Ruth and Orpah that have come under the roof of, of Elkanah and Chilion and Malon, and all the men die. And it seems that perhaps their own fathers died, because at last in the story, Naomi says, go home to your mother's house. I don't know what was going on over there. Maybe warfare? Maybe a lot of corruption? But there's a lot of dead guys over in Moab. Wasn't a good place to be for one reason or the other. And so Naomi picks up and says to this woman who has lost her husband and is now in impoverished state, Naomi says, I'm going to go home. And I think you should stay here with your people, your families, your mother's house. Orpah, after weeping, says, I'll stay. Ruth just won't. She just forbids it. She, just, she wants to be with Naomi. And at a great turning point in her life, she makes the statement to Naomi in Ruth 1.16, For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I'll lodge. And your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And Naomi said, okay. Come along with me. And this again was a great turning point in her life. When she goes to Israel though, she has to overcome a disparaged attitude in Naomi. Naomi goes home and everybody's celebrating. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Which is translated bitter. Well, huh. Okay. And so she has to overcome also what seems to be this woman who taught her faith in God who is embittered and still say that God is good and He's worth pursuing and I did make the right decision and I am in the right place and I am with the right people. But she had to overcome a great woman of faith who was struggling with her faith. Have you ever had to do that? Someone you're close to in the faith and all of a sudden, they begin to doubt or struggle or complain or question why things are the way they are. Does it ever shake your faith when that happens? Somebody close to you does that? It has mine. It has. It caused me to look inward as well and say, are we doing the right thing? Have I understood God the right way? So she overcomes some tremendous hurdles. And again, I say, I wonder this Moabitess coming into the camp of Israel in Bethlehem, interestingly, and going out into the fields during the harvest and being the Moabitess that came back with Naomi. 
Now that may have been how some looked at her, but that wasn't how everybody looked at her. Because God looked at her, uh, upon her and saw a great woman of faith who was seeking Him. And so God's hand went out to bless her. And that is when we are introduced to this man, Boaz, Rahab's son. Isn't that neat? And he's a godly man because he comes and he meets all of his laborers who are going to labor in his fields. There was wealth involved. Perhaps Rahab married well. And he says, God bless you all. And he begins to talk in such a fashion that it's revealed that he is someone of a deep faith. Someone of great belief, which is remarkable because they've just been through a tremendous famine and he's a farmer. It's remarkable. I don't think he's just in a good mood. I think he's endured faith himself. And these two wind up together. God has provided blessing in this case for a woman who was impoverished, needed companionship perhaps, was young yet, and he gave her a, a godly husband. It was a tremendous gift to her. And she did well to accept it. Then they marry and have a son. And as the story goes, this son's name is Obed, who becomes the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, who is one of the fathers, of course, of Jesus. And you can read about Ruth in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 also. There are four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. These two are Gentile women, a Canaanite and a Moabitess, and it specifically says their names, I think, on purpose. Not just to recall the stories, but to also teach us something about the nature of God toward those who call upon His name. He shows no favoritism toward race, ethnicities, or any such thing when someone comes to the one God. It's a wonderful uh, ending. Another happy ending. We need that after we read the book of Judges. <laughs> We need that happy ending. Finally, we see Hannah. Hannah is in 1 Samuel 1. And so you go from Joshua through the ugliness of Judges and into Ruth, which is a wonderful love story of a woman seeking God and finding His blessing. And then you go into 1 Samuel. And we read of a wonderful man, a godly man being raised for service to God. But first we're introduced to his mother right off the bat. In fact, we're introduced to her husband. This may be one of the greatest examples of overcoming in the Scriptures, in my opinion. Because we learn that she was a wife of a man named Elkanah, who loved her very much, but the problem was she wasn't the only wife. She had a rival. A rival, that's what the Bible calls her. A rival wife. And I think anytime you have more than one, you've got rival wives. Someone, someone said, if any man can learn to love his first wife enough that he thinks he can take on a second one, fine, but there is no such man that has too much love for one woman to absorb, and that's, that's a truth for sure. Uh, we're honest, we're still trying to figure out how to properly love one. And secondly, she was barren. And this other woman, Penina, had sons and daughters by Elkanah, and Elkanah favored Hannah. Well, no, he shouldn't, but he did. He favored her. He loved her. But Penina would just poke and jab and make her miserable with comments and hurt her, especially at the time 
when they went up to worship. She severely provoked her at the time when they went up to offer the annual sacrifice to God. And so here's a man, interestingly, who's, who's a man after God, but he has two wives, and that's never been approved. That's never been approved in the Scriptures. Well, what about David? What about Solomon? What about... Yeah, it's never been approved. Jesus even came back. He said, from the beginning it was not so. Now, God tolerated. God winked at, as Acts 17, Paul put it, times of ignorance. There are things that God has to tolerate with all of us if we're to survive and have a chance to make it to His eternal throne room. He has to tolerate all of us. But this is one that He seems to have tolerated in the Old Testament, but it's never a good situation. Never. And so she overcomes this by doing this. She is not eating at these feasts. She's so upset. Penina is so rubbing it in that she can't eat. Elkanah offers her double portions and says, please eat. You know that I love you more than, than ten sons. An ignorant statement. And she gets up and goes out to the tabernacle gate. And she falls on her face and prays to God and pours her soul out before the Lord, she says. Pours her soul out before the Lord. Praying to the Lord and weeping in anguish. Verses 10 and 15. She made a vow to God that if He would give her a child, she would give him back to the Lord's service. If you just but grant me this joy, if you but grant me this child, I'll devote him to you fully. I think she was already fully devoted. And as the story goes, she overcomes a few other things. For example, Eli, thinking she's drunk as he watches her lips move over there and accuses her of drunkenness. And Eli's sons, to whom she cannot go because they're too busy lying with the women who come to the tabernacle door, we, we learn later, and they're corrupt. And she overcomes her own husband's ignorance, who doesn't really understand her being so upset. And she overcomes her own self-pity. You know how we know that? She pours her soul out to the Lord. Think of it. She poured it out. There was nothing left. What did Paul say toward the end of his life about that? I'm being poured out as a drink offering. He's given it all. She poured her soul out for him. There was nothing left. And you know what she looked like when she got up and walked away? Well, she looked hungry. Number one, she went and got something to eat. Number two, it says her countenance or her appearance was no longer sad. And I propose to you that that is how you and I ought to be, feel, think when we say amen after a prayer to the Lord. That we ought to be able to lift ourselves up and open the eyes and no longer be sad, no longer be afraid, no longer be faithless. Because we have laid it, cast our care, as Peter said, upon the Lord who cares for us. It was at this point then that the Lord took up her cause. He opened her womb. She had a child. She named him Samuel. And she devoted him to the, ta the tabernacle, interestingly, in 
The old man Eli ends up raising him after he's weaned in the tabernacle, but he becomes a tremendous prophet, a tremendous judge, one of the, the last judge, in fact, before he anoints the first king, and a tremendous man of God, an example whom people feared and respected and loved. And she had the blessing of being able to see him grow in that way. Now think about if she had never had the faith to pray so boldly about something that was seemingly impossible. Think about if she hadn't poured herself out, but maybe just said, well, God, you ought to do something about this if you're the God of Israel. She emptied herself to the Lord. Now that's the kind of prayer that Jesus is calling for when He tells us to pray to the Heavenly Father. And she overcame quite a bit in order to do that. So let's wrap it up by looking at a few of these key things. These three women did what we're called to do today. So when I hear the Lord in Matthew 24 say, Matt, whoever endures to the end shall be saved. And Paul says to Timothy, and he also says to Matt, endure hardships as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I tend to think of my Pauls and my Peters and my Davids. And I tend to think of those guys because I'm a man, but I, I've learned to really go back and look closely at these three women and others who overcame great struggles, struggles that I also have to overcome in order to receive the love of God and the blessing of God in my life. They overcame their past. They overcame the harshness and criticism of God's own people. Now that's, that's something I want to just highlight one more time before we close. They overcame God's own people. Do you remember when Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, bear with one another in love? That means sometimes we get on each other's nerves. Sometimes we're very insensitive. Sometimes we say things that hurt each other's feelings. And you know what God says to us? Overcome it. Look what these women did. They had their eyes here and they also knew that God said to love these. Really? Yeah, they're your family. Okay, so we learn to love our, our natural families, and we come into the church and we're to learn to love our blood-bought brothers and sisters with the same spiritual fervor that it takes to love our own family members sometimes. Sometimes we get hurt by the most the slightest of insensitive sensitivities, and we want to leave the church or, or go away for a while or, or, or switch membership as if the grass is greener with another group of human beings. And, and that's why I'm saying we need, to, we need to just stay focused on pleasing the Lord, and it pleases Him when His family endures hardships, even if it comes from within the body of Christ. But let us not be found to be the ones causing the hardship or saying things without thinking. They shadowed and foreshadowed the faith of Christ during His lonely ministry. The one whom nobody could possibly understand Him or His ministry. He just wanted them to know who He was and what He was doing for them and for us. How can you understand His life? They foreshadowed the faith that didn't waver from the time He was struck to the time He was hanging on the cross and crying out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And yet He didn't come down from there as the devil tempted Him to do. 
He didn't stop the process. He endured as a good soldier. In fact, he was the original soldier of the cross. He's the only one in whom we are to place our hope. And that's what I love about Rahab and Ruth and Hannah. He is the one that we are to direct our faith toward and our hope in. We are not to put our hope and trust and faith in each other. That's a bonus because we're sinful. We'll let each other down. If my faith rested upon one of you, you ask, where would I be after so long? Right? There is only one to whom we must put our trust and faith in, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord, and in His gospel, that if we endure to the end, we'll be saved, and that if we are one with Him, He will lead us to the Father, regardless of the circumstances of our life, regardless of the bitterness of other people or the faithlessness of other people. Let it not be said to us, as it was said by Him to the Pharisees, harlots are entering the kingdom of heaven before you. I don't want to hear that anymore. And I want to hear, have you not read? Have you not read the story of Rahab? Harlots are entering the kingdom of heaven before you. Let us not be in those shoes. Let us not uh, wear the name of Christ in a way that would stop people from obeying the Lord, but rather be unstoppable for Him. So I call you to this this morning if you're not a Christian, to put Him on and let Him be your hope and salvation. And I call you, if you are a Christian, to rise above in faith and in endurance to the end. Because he who endures to the end will be saved. Let's stand and sing. When my way When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is Runs control.